0: Welcome to Coffee and Change, I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a US veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests Gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. What if we saw unhappiness not as a problem, but as a puzzle? When you start a puzzle, at first it can be daunting. Lots of pieces, lots of sorting lots of finding. This next story comes from someone who prides herself in helping others start putting those pieces together. Becky Morrison is the author of The Happiness Recipe, published in the spring of 2021. Having spent two decades in big law and finance, Becky untangled her way into happiness and shares her tips and insights in her book, as well as with her clients. Becky is also the co-host of a podcast called Coaching Carrie, where two lawyers turned coaches, rewatch Sex and the City, and can't help but wonder, how would Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, and Samantha's lives have been different if they had just had a coach to help them along? Learn a little about what coaching looks like and relive your favorite Sex and the City episodes all in one podcast. So without further ado, let's hear from Becky. excited to have that. I, I kind of took a, a series of notes, um, just kind of, you know, um, almost like a puzzle. Like, I'm gonna talk a little bit about that analogy because yep. I think it's really, it's been really fun to kind of just bounce around and look at some of the stuff that you got going on. Um, and I agree, I was like, I was kind of having this little flashback to, as you described, watching them first on VHS and then <laughs> watching them on DVD. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, and then going back and like rewatching the movies, mm-hmm. and um, and I have been thinking a lot about that series for many reasons, mainly because I have so many friends that were fans of it, and then of course the pandemic, and thinking about um, what it's what it's probably like watching it in pandemic, and thinking yep. about New York and things like that. So, um, yeah, I was like not expecting to necessarily start my Friday that way, but thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, wh- where are you, Bill?
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm actually in Seattle, Washington. Nice. Um, So I'm clear on the other side of the country, Um, but I'm very familiar with the part of the world you live in. I actually lived in Washington, D.C. for 13 years.
1: Awesome.
0: Uh, Yeah, I started my... Well, I started a number of careers there. Um, I went to graduate school at Georgetown. Okay. So we have a little bit of... We have that in common, yeah. That in common. Um, I also uh, was in... ROTC at Georgetown. So I commissioned as an army officer um, at the end of my graduate school tenure and started my army career. And at the same time, I was actually expecting to go active duty, but this was right after September 11th. You probably remember that time. I think you mentioned your husband has done work in counterterrorism, So there were so many people that joined up, wanted to join at the time, if you recall. that a percentage of my class of ROTC students um, essentially overnight were switched from active duty contract to reserve contract. Interesting. And the reason that happened, it is kind of interesting, wasn't wasn't due to performance or anything, it actually had to do with logistics. Mm-hmm. Um, there were not enough teachers to teach the new lieutenants uh, because all the teachers are captains and majors and they were all in Afghanistan. Makes sense. Um, so not enough teachers in the front of the room, yeah. not enough seats in the classroom for yeah. all the people that wanted to join. So the way that the Army handled it was to take a slice of many of the folks that were in ROTC wanting to join and saying, we're switching you to reserve. So yeah. And you can imagine <laughs> like what a change that was. Um, when I'm sure yeah when you're kind of all in and you're expecting to like, let's go, like let's mm-hmm. go, I'm, I'm going to Afghanistan. And, um, and what was really interesting for me was I then had to find a job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, I had it all figured out in the sense I knew where I was going to be and how I was going to be spending my time and how I was going to be earning my money. And boof, mm-hmm. now what? Yeah. yeah interesting.
0: And it was great. I mean, you'll appreciate this because you, know, you know Georgetown. Uh, the the way that it proceeded was someone in my graduate program, mm-hmm. um, and I went to a program called CCT, Communication, Culture, and Technology. Okay. Um which was in the car barn, if you know the car barn of Georgetown yeah. campus. Yeah. Yep. And there was a, a fellow student who had sent a, a message to the old bulletin board systems or you know, yes yeah, Back in the day. <laughs> and basically said, Hey, does anybody does anybody have a, a top secret clearance? Um if so, we're hiring. And so I responded directly to this person and said, I do. Mm-hmm. Because being a signal officer in the in the army, it's, it's you're a partner, required. Yes, um, and so he says, "Great, meet me in this room tomorrow in the car <laughs> barn." And I show up, and there's like an empty room and two chairs. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, Becky, I was like, this, "I like, have I fallen for a joke?"
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, what's actually happening here? Yep.
0: Am I going to be sort of you know on this candid camera thing? And the interview proceeds, and he says, "Great, like, show up tomorrow um, at the State Department." And I was like, okay, well, sure. Well, it turned out that the interview was actually being done by a consulting company. Who Got was it. hired by the State Department to, to find help people. them. Yep. Right. And so that's how I started my career in consulting. <laughs> that's awesome. And that was almost 20 years ago. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um,
0: so yeah, so I did uh, spend quite a bit of time in Washington, D.C., started both those careers then, and I moved out here to Seattle in let's see 2014 2015 okay. ish yeah around that time I've been out I've been out here since so I like to describe it as the other Washington because <laughs> most of my network is your yes, Washington this Washington
1: yeah <laughs> yes. yeah
0: um, but yeah so that's that's where I'm at
1: Awesome yeah so um, I think we were probably I mean Georgetown the law school campus is not even. Sure. in georgetown town. which yeah. i didn't know to be clear until after i had accepted oh that's a good story we got to hear Came <laughs> to look for apartments and i was like oh wait a minute i don't want to live in georgetown and commute to capitol hill but i didn't yeah. know that i was going to be going to school on- anyway um, but yeah so i think we were probably there around the same time when did you graduate
0: um, so i started gosh let me see if i if i remember this correctly um, I think I started in O2.
1: Okay, so you ju- I finished in O2. so we just okay, so we, we just, just yeah. Yeah because
0: yeah. yeah, it was after, it was after September 11th, because I had my first job. it was kind of an interesting um, sort of left turn there too. My first job was in Philadelphia. I graduated from Johns Hopkins undergrad okay. a, up in Baltimore. and okay. um, I took a job with a travel management company. Mm. I was essentially a proposal writer okay. for them. And it was an interesting job because I had a degree in international studies in Russian. And everybody's like, why are you taking this job <laughs> with doing? like a travel management <laughs> company and you're a proposal writer? Looking back on it, it was a great move because I learned how to do business writing mm-hmm. in a very efficient way. And I actually had fun with it. You, you probably recall, this is back in the days of like when MapQuest was a big deal. Oh, yeah. So we'd get these proposals from large organizations like an IBM or a Starbucks. And yep. essentially what they'd say is, Hey, we're deciding whether we choose your company or American Express or Carlson Wagonlit to do all of our travel for us. So they would essentially call yes. us and we'd book it, you know, that old model before the Expedias and the orbits of mm-hmm. the world. And we'd write this proposal in a very you know, compelling way. And I remember if one of the exercises I loved doing was pulling up the office addresses of said company, their locations, and going into our very rudimentary database of hotels that mm-hmm. were in our partner system. And I would actually uh, map out how many steps it was from their office in, say, New York City, downtown, you know, in Manhattan, to
1: your hotels, yeah. to the
0: hotels, and that would sort of help them determine, oh, I think this would be a better one of the many options. And I really enjoyed that uh, aspect of it, and I think the other aspect that I really enjoyed was the creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one one account proposal we had put forth um, was for Starbucks, and the you know I was just the low guy on the pole, right? I was staying up late typing all the proposal responses, and we were about to ship it off in the boxes and. You've probably done a lot of these proposals in your days and you know how this goes, right? You gotta pack it and send it off and hope it makes that last X drop <laughs> to get there. And I remember saying, we have to do something really unique to stand out. And they said, what do you have in mind? And I said, hear me out. And I went and I got my Starbucks cup. <clears throat> I took a like a, a container or a bowl that was nearby and I poured some of my coffee in the container and I took the bottom brim of the cup. So oh, imagine- like- it, and then, and what I started doing was on the edges of the page, I put coffee stain rings and they were like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, trust me on this one. And they said, I cannot trust you on this. we just printed this whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Like we just
1: paid all this. Now you're like defacing mm-hmm. all of our, yeah.
0: And then I said, I have one more idea. And, uh, we jumped in the car, ran to a nearby Starbucks, grabbed, uh, coffee beans. Mm. and we filled the box with Starbucks coffee beans. Love it. As opposed to just like the pop you know, the, the yeah, yeah, styrofoam yeah, yeah, popcorn. Yeah. Well, we got the work. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I remember thinking to myself, and this is a little bit about I think what we'll talk about this morning is that I did not listen to the should.
1: hmm
0: Instead I created a story. That's right. And I remember in my mind thinking, I could get fired for this. <laughs> or we could win. But there's really nothing in between. <laughs> <laughs> so I had fun. I had a lot of fun doing it. And then, of course, September 11th happened. Yep. And everybody's life changed. Yep. Um, and I had clarity. And that was, I need to serve something bigger than self. And I remember telling my bosses and my peers, uh, I'm joining the military. And they were like, what? Um, and I come from, you know, many generations of, of uh, veterans. Got it. so... Um, Yeah, that's that's when my life changed quite a bit.
1: I think we have those moments, right? And sometimes they're personal and sometimes they're they're global or in the case of September 11th National. And I think we're in one now, right? I think that's for a lot of people. That is what 2020 into 2021 has brought us is that moment of clarity of like, what am I actually doing with my time and with my life? And is this it?
0: It's this generation's kind of iteration of that, I think. I mean, it's kind of crazy thinking how, you know, we're now. We're now 20 years past September 11th, um, and we're in this. And as you've described, people are stopping and taking stock. Yes. Um, and one of the things I would love to, to chat, one of the things that you've talked about, which so resonates with me, like I can feel it. When you talk about the next logical step, mm-hmm. there's so much that, that came up for me um, because I was always... The best little boy in the world, mm-hmm. right? Like I would, it was there was no question. As as you've talked about on other podcasts and with other guests, you knew you were going to go to college. Mm-hmm. You knew you were going to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. You knew you were going to take the high profile job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious if you can unpack a little bit because I think there's so much in there. I love how you describe that, like next next logical step. But you also have this work that you you incorporate around puzzles and mm-hmm. the puzzle of life. And what really comes up for me is is like when I sat with my godson recently. He loves puzzles, but it's so interesting because the the delight of a puzzle and putting a puzzle together does not come from picking the piece that is the next logical step.
1: Correct. And it's
0: it's almost the opposite of that. Yep. Um, And so much came up for me when I was listening to some of your work that I thought, wow, um, if we could go back and do it a little differently. So yeah, I would just love to, I mean, I know we kind of jumped right in. Yeah, it's all good. (laughs) um, Where would you love to start? I mean, there's so much goodness that I took on notes, but. um, You tell me, I mean, I'll
1: start wherever you want. Pick pick a place and let's pull this thread and see what happens. Um,
0: Let's pick pick the story about almost flipping the coin between law school and business school. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think I can I can squeeze in there the fact I mean, that is how I ended up picking a law school that I didn't even know where it was located. I mean, let's, right. be, let's be honest, right? Because I wasn't putting a lot into, of thought into the what. I was just like, oh, this is what I'm doing next. And yeah.
0: Yep. that's And, fine. and you became I mean, it's interesting because like you knew that you wanted to pursue law school and or business school what you you kind of refer to it as like flipping a coin mm-hmm, it's true hey it, what it, it did if you had ended up at either would you well looking back on it right the, the keyword being happy would you have been happy or do you think you the path that you ended up on needed to be the path in order to take you where you're at now
1: i mean look you can't at the end of the day right like the path is the path but mm-hmm. if i were to be able to go back what i would do actually is do
0: both Interesting. So you would you would, I would do, have I actually the, know a handful of people that joint, have done the JD MBA. Yep,
1: the joint degree, yeah. because I think there is so much of my career kind of, you know, the first four years out of law school, four and a half years, I was a litigator. And that was all law. But mm-hmm. after that point, there is so much of my career where I think I would have benefited from the MBA type the knowledge. Side. Now, question mark, if I had done both, would I have even gone into litigation? I don't know. And I do think that was an important part of my journey to like sort of create the tension and unhappiness that I needed to resolve. So I don't know. Who knows how that would have unfolded?
0: Yeah, I'm curious from like from the litigation aspect of it. And I'm married. I'm married to a lawyer, so awesome. I tell people uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV. <laughs> That's what I tell you know, people. You know, you know enough. Yep. <laughs> I know enough. I know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious when you talk about like the the litigation. It seems like, and I've I've had former um, you know lawyers on this show before, and it is really interesting those high pressure environments uh, where the stakes are really really high. People get a lot of clarity in those moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, you shared a story I think on with another, maybe on your on your own podcast with your co-host about the moment when you're like bathing your kid, putting together all these documents on the phone, like. It reminded me very much of kind of what we're doing now in a pandemic. Yes. Um, you know, balancing 12 Zooms a day, feeding your kid, uh, making sure that the house repairs are happening, setting up a new office, yep. which is sort of our, our workspace. All of this is happening concurrently and continuously. Yes. Um, so I'm curious, what was that like for you? And then if you reflect on where we're at now, is it does it bring up some of the same stuff?
1: I mean... The short answer is, sure, it brings up some of the same stuff. I think what I'll say is this. I really liked the high pressure part of litigating when I was free to give it my full focus. But as a new mom, that didn't last very long, right? I mean, so I started uh, working at as a litigator in September of 2002. Okay. And my daughter was born in October of 2003. So the first year of litigating was lots of fun because I had a husband who had a job and yes, I needed to give my marriage some bandwidth, but I had a lot more of my own time. Um, And I loved going to trial. I loved the high intensity parts, again, when I was able to focus. When I got to the point then when I had a small child and I felt my focus being pulled, that's where it wasn't fun for me. That's where the tension came. Um, And so, yeah... Where, what people are dealing with today absolutely um, brings back some of that for me. I will say that, you know, at this point now, I have a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old. So mm-hmm. and I have been working at home for the past now seven years. And so yeah. the, this has not been a huge change for me personally Um and the ways that I'm having to juggle. I mean, I have basically too many adults who, who I can ask a lot of and a lot that of makes it well, and that makes a big difference though cuz I'm not, you know, where I have I have friends who've got kids in that sort of preschool elementary school age yeah. and that requires a split in focus that I'm not having to deal with. So
0: right.
1: Um, yeah.
0: I think it's interesting um, you know, I've been reading so much about the Women leaving leaving the workplace during the pandemic. Yep. Um, and it's it's some staggering statistics. Um, yep. So I'm curious have you have you chatted with you know other friends or <clears throat> even peers that are that are navigating those waters and 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 learning new things about themselves. I mean I I'm hoping it's not just leaving the workplace as we as we know it and sort of the walls of Corporate America, the boardrooms, the courtrooms, what what have you, um, and, and more of a I'm making a different choice in my life. Um, is that what you're hearing? Is that what you're I'm
1: hearing discovering? a a mix. I mean, I ha- I know there are some people in my universe who have simply just said like, in order to for my family to survive the next however long it is until we have some ability to you know be back in in person school in person you know child care that kind of thing um, more regularly they have said i need to one of us needs to be home and it's me um, and so that to me is a, a, about a survival choice right it's not they're not making that choice because they really want to be 100% focused on family mm-hmm. they're making that choice because family needs to take priority right now and it's going to take a backseat to whatever's happening with me what i'm seeing now that that we have more and more people um, getting vaccinated more and more things opening up is those people are beginning to engage in the conversation of, okay, it's looking like things might settle down. Now what for me? Is it back to the same thing? Is it onward to something new? And then I have a handful of clients um, and, and friends, but, but more clients who are in this space of like, I'm completely burnt out and overwhelmed at work. I'm not walking out. I'm not quitting. I don't need to. I can sustain but I actually desperately need to figure out what am I going to do to make it better in the short term, and then what does that mean for me in the long term?
0: Yeah, the now what is such an interesting question. Yeah, um, because I actually think it's very expansive,
1: hugely um,
0: expansive. Yeah,
1: because there is no le- next logical step at that point,
0: <laughs> right? Which, which people like you and me kind of have this initial like
1: about because yeah.
0: uh, yeah. that's how I'm programmed. Yes. But I also think we've never stared this much expansive opportunity in the face before. Um,
1: There is a tendency in our world to treat the unknown as scary. Mm -hmm. If we can, instead of calling it the unknown, call it possibility, Mm -hmm. it gets a little more exciting. And so helping people make that shift To where it's and you said it it's expansive possibility and that can feel unsettling but actually it's super duper exciting and allowing yourself to be in the excitement of that space instead of the fear of the unknown
0: yeah i um you know i think a great deal about you use you use um the butterfly analogy a lot in your work and and I'd, i'd be curious to hear more about that because one of the things for me that I'm I'm usually reminding myself of in those times when you know we're we're going through real challenges, we just feel like when's it gonna stop? Mm-hmm. When's it gonna end? Um, I'm often reminded of the chrysalis. Yes. Um, and you know you got to go through that. <laughs> like you're literally transforming from one existence to another. Um, so that you can literally fly further um, and be brighter and dazzle the world. Um, Is that something that you've always had a sense of that that analogy or that metaphor for yourself? No?
1: It is not. Um, That really came about as I was beginning my transition out of sort of traditional career into working for myself as a coach and consultant kind of around the same time, a good friend of mine was sending their first child off to college. And I, we, we were texting back and forth as she was sort of navigating the waters of letting go. And I just said, well, this is so exciting. This is her butterfly season. Like you've prepared her for this. She gets to spread her wings and fly and it's gonna be so fun to see what the impact that she has, right? And then as I was reflecting on that, I was like, well, if her butterfly season is when she's 18, what is the rest of our life? You know, like, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want my butterfly season to be right now. Like, and I feel like it was for me, right. It is for me. This is a a transition I made where I, where I went from something that felt very contained to something that felt very big and free and expansive and, and very much about me being who the fullness of me. Um, and so that is where, where that, uh, metaphor kind of came into my work, and and I really, and you said it, it's this idea of it's cyclical, right? There are moments where we have to caterpillar, and that means we're living a smaller, simpler, more contained, more um, narrowly focused existence, and there's not a thing wrong with that. And then there are moments where we have to cocoon, where it's dark, where it's quiet, where it might be uncomfortable, and and feel tight and and we're not sure why we're stuck in this like tight ball and then there's the butterfly right so it's just that continuous cycle of all of it and really leaning in to um where we are in that cycle or the way i talk about it the season that we're in in our life and being at a minimum accepting that the season is the season and not fighting against the edges of it
0: yeah and i I think the other part that i really Love about what you're saying is that it's because it is a season, it's not just a one time thing. I think <clears> I know I've experienced um, that sometimes there's this undue pressure mm-hmm. of you've got to have this paramount moment in life, and like that's it, yes, right? Like you got to reach it one butterfly, and it. that's
1: it, and you're done. <laughs>
0: um, whereas I'm much more about like, hey, let's hang out in the menagerie, yes, like, let's go to that place that has, yes. I forget I forget where it is, but there's the butterfly experience. It's, yes, it's literally, where you go in and they all land on you, and um, you're you're kind of just your breath is taken. Yep. Um, by the beauty of it all, and I'm hopeful that people may start to see more of those. But I think we're still pushing up against kind of a societal schema. Is that Yeah, we is are. That true.
1: Absolutely, and no. I mean, over the past year or so, one of the things that I've had the pleasure of doing is reconnecting with nature. And I'm not like an outdoorsy kind of person at all, but we happen to live in a neighborhood that has some great hiking trails. And so just that, I mean, for me, that that reconnection has been huge. And I was out a couple weeks ago and I was looking, and this is before spring had sprung here in Virginia. And I was looking at the trees with their bare branches. And I had this sort of aha that that is growth too. When the branches are bare, that is growth, too. It is part of their growth cycle every year, right? And those trees, I mean, I understand they aren't sentient beings the same way that we are, but they aren't sitting there worried about when the leaves are going to come back, right? They're not
0: worried about their next promotion. <laughs>
1: they're not like, when am I going to get to be green again? This is terrible. No, they're just sitting there doing what they do in winter, which is whatever right. trees do in winter. Um and they're waiting for the external cues in the form of temperature increases and moisture changes and whatever else to, to know that it's time to to leaf, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to think about, you know, in our lives, how can we do a little more of that? How can we acknowledge the season that we're in and release some of the external pressure that we've taken on to be green or to, you know, to be flowering all the time? It's, it's okay to prepare. It's okay to grow quietly and it's okay to grow with bare branches sometimes.
0: Yeah. And I think this, this kind of goes to the, some of the, you know, you, you, have got a book that I believe is coming out or is already coming. It's out.
1: out. Yeah. It's out. It's awesome. Out.
0: Congratulations. Thank yeah, I you. think It was out like spring, right? Spring, uh, just a couple spring.
1: weeks ago, it came out April
0: 6th. Awesome. What's the name of the book? Tell us about it. So
1: the name of the book is The Happiness Recipe, a powerful guide to living what matters. And it's really, um, designed to help people engage in an exploration of how to bring more happiness into their life right now, and then how also to prepare for the future season or next season that they, that they anticipate or want. Um, but it's eminently practical. It's full of action steps and, and uh, exercises that can really help you dig into closing the gaps between you and your happiness.
0: I love the fact that you, you use the word recipe in it because um, I was just talking with uh, some friends and some colleagues, and we were actually talking about a lot of the social justice, mm. um, or mm-hmm. in some cases, injustice, injustice yeah. that's happening. You call it the social justice movement, but countering the injustice. And <clears throat> there's been this real interesting, um, I wouldn't necessarily call it debate, but discussion as of this past week, um, mm-hmm. you know, with with the verdict that came down in the Chauvin trial, and um, people are saying things like accountability is not justice, and and one of the really interesting things that I've I've heard and and started to kind of um, zero in on is there are ingredients. So, like, I would I would argue that accountability is an ingredient to justice. Absolutely, but it goes to. Exactly to the point you're making, which is it's a recipe. Mm -hmm. And in order to do, in order to make something masterful, make something wonderful, make something lasting, make something nourishing, you've got a recipe that goes along with the ingredients. And it takes care and it takes curating Mm -hmm. and charisma and all of that stuff that goes into it. I think that's such a powerful part of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. To make happiness a reality, it's not just an ingredient. That's it's right. It's a recipe. That's right. And it's
1: a recipe, I mean, a couple of things. It's a recipe that's unique to you and it's a recipe that's unique to your season, right? So like the recipe analogy would be, you know, we're not baking a cake the same way at altitude that we're baking it at sea level, right? And it's, so it's understanding where you're situated in the world and how you might need to tweak your happiness recipe as your place or whatever changes. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and it makes me... Uh... It makes me wonder a little bit, uh, and I'll, I'd love to pivot to your podcast work yes. as well, called Coaching Carry, yes. um, which I will do my best to describe it because I'm going to get giddy about it, but I would love <laughs> for you to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> it's essentially you mm-hmm. and another another peer coach
1: mm-hmm.
0: who are kind of reliving the Sex in the City uh, watching experience yes. and then reflecting on what you as coaches would have told the four ladies in Sex and the City um, and kind of how their life and their storyline might have been different had they just had an executive coach. Is yes. that an accurate depiction? That okay. is a
1: very accurate depiction, yes. Uh, the goal with the podcast is several fold, um, but the primary goal from a coaching perspective, perspective is to allow people to see what coaching can look like in a very non-threatening way, right? Because we're taking on these fictional characters and some of their challenges. But the reality is one of the things that I think made Sex in the City or and even maybe still makes Sex in the City appealing is that it takes on very real life things that people experience as they navigate relationships and friendships and careers. um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun to <laughs> re-examine this 20-year-old show, parts of which hold up and parts of which do not, um, but also to relive our lives a little bit because it came out kind of, I mean, Sex and the City came out when I had was in between college and law school and, and was a young person living in the New York area and dating. So it very much feels like reliving a little bit of my, I was going to say childhood, but I think young adulthood is a better
0: word. Yeah. Yeah, singlehood. Yeah, singlehood.
1: Exactly. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think it was so interesting because I love in your podcast um, you all play on these words, and one of my favorite phrases in that in that series, I think many people will relate, was when Carrie would say, "I couldn't help but wonder." Yeah, and so I'm going to throw one of those, "I couldn't help but wonders," at you. I couldn't help but wonder what would it, what would Carrie say reading your book?
1: Well, <clears throat> we're only in, we've only taken on season one at this point. So I, I will say okay. this. I'm not sure that season one Carrie would even pick up my book. <laughs> honestly. I love that honestly. Yes. And I think if she I mean if she were to read it, I think I think she'd have a lot to say about what she thinks happiness comes from and and all of that. I think she might fight it a little harder because of where she's coming from at that point. Um and I haven't rewatched the later seasons enough to know how much evolution happens. One of the things that has been really interesting in the rewatch is seeing it through different eyes where I remember watching it the first time around and really relating to Carrie a lot. And now I watch it and I'm like Carrie, come on. Get your shit <laughs> yeah, like and I'm the biggest I like I remember like my general feeling on on Mr. Big prior to engaging in this like deep rewatch was you know he was kind of all over the place a little bit full of himself like i'm glad it worked out for them in the end but i was always an aiden not a big fan right and uh and now we're re-watching i'm like he's a literal saint like he actually has himself together he's trying to figure out you know he first of all he communicates he actually asks her what's going on and she's just being so obtuse so uh, it's interesting to look back and see it through a different lens a, a, you know a lens where i've been married for 19 years it looks a little different than back when I was single yeah
0: yeah I think it is fascinating because one of the reasons I actually got into watching this show was because most of my gay friends as a gay man yep. were like you got to watch this show yeah and I found it really interesting and I too will probably go back and re-watch it my brother and I were actually just talking about this like to your point the power of re-watching yep shows that that had you know, a pretty big presence at, at some point in our life and then bringing that back up. Um, so for example, The West Wing is another one Yes. Um, that um, I've started re-watching and there's a great podcast that a friend of mine just recommended to me that I didn't know. It's called The West Wing Podcast and they do exactly what you all are doing is they watch an episode Fun. and they deconstruct it through the lens of what we see today yep. and what we know. Um, and I just know that I will get deep into that. And I'll find myself, you know, 17 hours later, (laughs) episodes and podcasts consumed. And, you know, people will be like, Bill, you need to take a break. So I'm, I'm slow rolling it. But, but back to my, you know, my point around being a gay man, watching this show, I found it really interesting because in some ways your point around how people communicate and how people uh, get frustrated in communications, um, be it intergenerational mm-hmm. or between genders, it was really eye opening in some ways for me um, to, to understand also the pace of something like a New York life versus a Washington, D.C. life. Yes. Um, you know, we in D.C. used to say, and I'm sure you can relate, we'd love going to visit New York City because we come home to a small town.
1: It is much smaller. It, it, I mean, or it feels much smaller. It's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah.
0: Um, yep. and, and there's also this, I, I don't think it, it still exists, but there was always this sort of under, you know, under rumbling of, of healthy kind of competition between a DC and a New York mm-hmm. and, and people from New York used to say, oh... It's the Hollywood for Ugly People, D.C., and, you know, what exactly do you do down there? Yes. And, and and I found it really fascinating to to be watching shows about New York mm-hmm. while in Washington, D.C. Um, and now that I live on the West Coast of the United States, it's all so different. Yes. Um, you know, yes, we've got 20 years' worth of experience to look back on stuff, but I'm also reminded that this country is so diverse and just when we think we have an understanding of the cosmopolitan metropolitan experience you don't no not at all no um and so re-watching these shows i think will will be really fascinating and and almost instructive yes to to counter those and and face some of those biases as well as those areas where we thought we knew it all right i agree with you on the mr big stuff i mean there were probably times I was saying, he's a narcissist. Yes. He's, he's an immature little boy who has a lot of money and, and nice cars and nice suits, and I can't stand him. Going back on, on it, I mean, those those are all still things I probably hold true. To but I some also extent, realized, yeah. Yeah, I also realized it was impossible to communicate
1: with Carrie. <laughs> I mean... I mean, and, and so how could you show up any other way? <laughs> yes. And I actually in watch. And so like we've only now released the first two episodes of season one, but we've recorded the whole first season. And nice and um, in in kind of working our way through that, I mean, he's pretty straight up about where he's at yeah he is not hiding the ball he's not trying to say like i'm in for commitment but secretly i'm also you know not really into he's like straight up like i'm not sure i want to get married i'm not sure that i want a deep commitment like i like my freedom i've gotten accustomed to doing certain things and somehow like that just falls on deaf ears for her and she needs what she needs but she can't even articulate what she needs in like normal words i mean there is an episode where she calls him in the middle of the night to meet her because she's found out that he's dating other people. And she gives him this speech about the world being a carousel and asks him if he will just stand still with her. I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, really? Like, and I get, I get, it's it's for TV, right? And we need some drama and we need some metaphor and we need some like flowery language. But also, I think what you're trying to say is, can we be exclusive? So why don't you just say that? So
0: (laughs) use the words. Yeah. And how many women do you think probably use that line about the carousel for the next 20 years?
1: Yes. Yes. And I mean, that's right. And we're not doing anyone any favors by by teaching people to communicate in these like vague metaphors that that feel romantic, but actually just muddy the water. Um, Yeah. So,
0: yeah, I I do think it's I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's probably some. Um, you know, classes that probably watch some of these episodes and teach the power of communication and metaphor and mudding the waters. I also remember many episodes where, you know, to your point around, we got to go through it to to be in it. There were, I think some of the best episodes I remember were when Carrie was falling apart. Yes. Um, I think it might have even been in one of the movies, if I recall, and you could probably keep me honest here. There's this aspect of where... Carrie and Big, she says, I'm going back to my apartment. I basically need three days in the city to just write in my place, in my space. And I remember it being this like moment of tension and there was all that discussion around at the time like Gwyneth Paltrow and the conscious uncoupling and what's happening. And I was like, stop. Like, why are we demonizing the fact that somebody has has the courage to say, I need I need my own space occasionally to be who I am yeah. and it has no reflection and in no way does it lessen the love I have for you. Yes. And it seemed like this revolutionary concept that was kind of being played out on the screen. And it reminded me, those were some of the most compelling moments of the character of Carrie for me was when she was sitting in a closet crying, yes, gripping a, a, a very expensive shoe because like <laughs> that was her chrysalis moment. Yes, yes. And we make fun of it, but everybody, we've all got those moments. Yes. and. I liked that. I liked that it showed that as as much as we were kind of poking fun at some of the edges, there was still somebody going through something.
1: And I think that's why we were drawn to a rewatch, right? And I'll, I mean, I'll be fair, like the first season of any show like that, that goes on for seasons and seasons, it's just finding its footing. And so we don't Mm -hmm. have fully developed characters. We don't have the depth of emotion. What we have is the very beginnings of these, these people's stories portrayed by actors who are very talented. I mean, I do have a new appreciation for just like the simple, the amount of information that they convey in 20 some odd minutes and the, and the amount that they often convey without any words is actually really masterful. But you know, yeah, it's going to get more sophisticated and more to your point, interesting to explore as they, as it becomes more complicated. And I think you hit the nail on the head, right? At the end of the day, we all deserve to be able to ask for what we need and to have the people in our lives be honest with us about whether they can or cannot meet our needs i mean that is a fundamental i think sort of like human right that we by doing all of all of this comparison and all of this demonization that we've kind of removed from ourselves and i'm uh, personally i'm over it
0: yeah me too (laughs) You know? I'm right there with you. Yeah, I mean, that's where, when I think about the S word, right? It's that should. Yes. And, and I've, I've spent so much time with that S word. I, I really would like to <laughs> eliminate it and spend more time in the story making. Yes. In the storyline, And the storyscaping. Yes. Of who I am. Yes. And what makes me happy? What's the recipe I get to work on? Yes. What is the altitude I'm at? Yes. Um, and and I think that's what's great about rewatching shows that meant a lot to us because whether you're sitting on the couch or at the gym watching it on a on a device, you're having those moments where you say, "I wish I could afford myself that reflection now." Yes. That I'm uh, that I'm giving to a television show yes. or you know a movie. Yes. And I think people people need to just do that. You have permission to do that. That's right. That's right. You have permission to think about
1: it. You have permission to talk about it. You have permission to ask about it. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it's not fair to walk through the world expecting all of our needs to be immediately met, but it is fair to walk through the world expecting to be able to ask
0: right,
1: of ourselves and of others. And that's a big, I mean, the of ourselves part is a big one too. I've run into so many people, for some reason it's come up a lot recent, like very recently, um, who don't even know what they need to ask for because we are so disconnected from ourselves and so heavily in the should right like our life has been scripted in this well i should i should go to this school i should get this kind of job i should have this kind of house i should have this kind of family i -hmm. should want you know not need time for myself or need time for whatever it is like i should um and it's, you know, trying to escape that when you don't have a clear place to escape to because you don't know what you actually want is an
0: interesting wrinkle. Yeah, it's an, it, it can be really uncomfortable for people. Very. Um, and I'm reminded and maybe this is maybe this comes with age. You know, in my 40s, I'm reminded that those edges of discomfort is when the learning begins. And that's when I get to sort of like dial it up and be like, well, let's really pay attention to what's happening now.
1: Right. And I think you're saying, without saying it, you've reached a place where you've figured out that discomfort isn't actually bad, mm-hmm. right? The discomfort is a sign that something, something there's something on the other side of the, that discomfort worth exploring. And I think it takes us a while to get to that place too. I mean, especially when we've lived in a world of shoulds and then when it starts to feel uncomfortable, it's this idea of, well, I shouldn't be uncomfortable. So let me go back right. to doing the thing that makes me comfortable even if it doesn't make me happy. And that shift is a big, big deal too and
0: i and i and i think it's also very very much about the perception versus the truth yes so this and i know you've spoken about this on other podcasts which i really appreciate is is sometimes the discomfort is actually not ours (laughs) it's us picking up on the discomfort of others around us when they realize we've stepped off the should yes treadmill
1: yes i mean that guilt is a great example If you stop and think about the times that you've felt guilty, especially put yourself in a place where you've just stepped off the should and you're feeling some guilt, and like really dialing into explaining that guilt, defining that guilt, 95% of it does not belong to you. Sometimes there might be a little bit that does, but 95% of it belongs to the people around us who are like not comfortable with us rewriting the script.
0: Yeah. Unsubscribing.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. I've, I've seen small examples of this at times where, and this is a small example, but, but I picked up on it um, pretty prominently. A number of years ago, for my own reasons, I, I stopped drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting because it's not like I made a big declaration statement, but most of the ways at the time you know pre-pandemic you would gather with people you would do happy hours dc right yeah it's a power town yeah that's, that's 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 where it ha- where, where discussions and debates happen is is um, over drinks yep and i remember somebody saying something like oh what can i get you and i think i said something like oh i'm just gonna get like a ginger beer or something and and they inquired why right? and i said well i've actually decided you know i'm i I've quit drinking alcohol for now. And I watched the discomfort
1: mm-hmm.
0: around me. Um, and a pretty fascinating thing happens in that in that exchange. A lot of people keep checking in on you. Yeah, yeah. Are you sure you're okay? You sure didn't want anything? Did I say something? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Did I push this on? All of it comes from this really um, caring place and it all gets lost in this awkward discomfort. Yes. And I started to realize, Becky, that I was making other people uncomfortable. <laughs> I had no discomfort. Right. I was completely happy with my yeah, non alcoholic yeah, in big, my hand. Yeah, not a big deal. Yeah, hmm There were others around me that were uncomfortable by the state of that fact. Yes. And I then started to observe that, Behavior change,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I and I started making choices. Like I don't want to make people uncomfortable in a social setting, so I was more selective about how many times I went out and and if I did, where I stood and who. All of those things come into play. Yep. But it was such a fascinating mini experiment to me that I realized none of this is mine. That's right.
1: And so you have a choice, right? When you have a situation like that, you can you can choose to just let the discomfort exist and not engage with it. You can choose like you do to change your behavior to mm-hmm. minimize your exposure to this discomfort. You There's a choice in there too of like confronting the discomfort, right? And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know in that situation how that looks exactly, but I mean, there is a place where you can say, it seems like my choice here has made you uncomfortable. Do you wanna talk about it?
0: Right, right. <laughs>
1: And opening that door to a genuine conversation um, Mm -hmm. I think can be really powerful, maybe not necessary in that circumstance that you described with everybody, but maybe necessary with some people who you want to continue to socialize comfortably with. Um, Um, How else do you get the discomfort out of the way if you don't acknowledge and discuss it? And we so many times in our lives, in our relationships, and at work in particular, observe that discomfort. And then then we write a novel about it
0: like Carrie did. Yes,
1: like novel. <laughs> and, it, and it is literally not based in any reality other than we mm-hmm. sensed some discomfort,
0: here.
1: right? And that's the only fact we have is that we think what we observed is discomfort. And so now I'm going to write the story. And we're all that energy is being spent writing the story, reacting to the story, having feelings about the story, instead of just calling a spade a spade and saying, I saw this, it seems like you're uncomfortable. Confirm or deny, let's discuss.
0: Which is essentially what Mr. Big was doing all along. He would say <laughs> to Carrie, do you want to talk about it? And she would say yes and no at the same yeah.
1: time. Yeah, she'd be like, stand still with me. <laughs> what?
0: We're on a moving carousel. Yeah. Please don't move. <laughs> kind of make the world stop. Make
1: the world stop. Yeah, no, I mean, and he, yeah. No, and he really does. I mean, he's the one who always is like, what is actually going on here? And tries to right. get her to engage in that conversation. He opens this door and, it I don't know, I'm waiting for her to walk through it. So...
0: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a fun, simple but powerful analogy. Yeah. Um, in this in this aspect, um, well, this has been an amazing conversation that was really meandering and, and <laughs> nourishing for me.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. No, I've enjoyed it, and I'm I'm glad we got to connect. And it's you know it's interesting. Um, one of the reasons I love doing this and and appearing on podcasts is meeting cool, interesting people who I find interesting commonalities with. And so it's been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I would love for you just uh, before we wrap, uh, tell folks where they can find out more about you. Find out where to, you know, where to find your book, where to find the great work you're doing in executive coaching, where to find the podcast, um, you know, coaching Carrie, all of this. So I'm
1: going to keep it really simple. You can find all of it on my website, which is untanglehappiness.com. There's a link to the podcast there, a link to the book, and a link to the other work that I, I mean, the coaching work that I do in support of all of that. So,
0: sure, untangle happiness. Untanglehappiness.com. Powerful. Yep. Image. Yeah.
1: Yep.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Becky, for the time this morning. This was a really great conversation. I too, the reason I love doing these things is because um, I learn so much in every conversation. Um, and just when you think you're done learning about yourself or another human being or society, or even a show like Sex in the City, (laughs) you're not done. That's right.
1: That's right. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was great.